Well, we're turning back now to Isaiah, and this morning we're looking at Isaiah chapters 3 and 4. So as you uh, open up Isaiah and find chapters 3 and 4, I'm going to lead us in prayer, and I'm going to use some words from Psalm 119. Gracious Heavenly Father, give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in it. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Amen. Well, please do make sure you've got sight of Isaiah chapter 3 and 4 as we work through God's word together. Now, I wonder, what is the greatest danger we face today? I wonder how we'd answer. What about our neighbours? What would they say? Political extremism, systemic racism, perhaps, poverty, climate change. I guess for lots of people, coronavirus is going to be very high up the list, isn't it? There's lots of fear around, isn't there? At the beginning of the outbreak, the World Health Organization said it's the worst enemy you can ever imagine and poses a greater global threat than terrorism. But perhaps if we're a follower of Jesus, we're more concerned with a a new totalitarian liberalism, restricted freedoms, having to conform to a secular ideology. George Orwell's words seem just as relevant today. He says this, what is new in totalitarianism is that its doctrines are not only unchallengeable, but also unstable. They have to be accepted on the pain of damnation, but on the other hand, they're always liable to be altered on a moment's notice. Is that the greatest danger? Well, as we open up Isaiah again, we're shown the danger we all face. On the surface, it might look like bad leaders or even other believers. But just listen and see if you can spot what you think the greatest danger is. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. For they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. 
The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty. She shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. What is the greatest danger we face? What is the greatest danger God's people face? It might look like bad leaders. On the surface, it might look like God's people treating one another badly. It's getting close to what Isaiah's on about. But ultimately, the greatest danger is our own sin, our rebellion against God and the judgment we deserve is the single biggest danger anyone can face at any time, in any place. And that's the issue here. We're still in the introductory chapters of the book, so in a sense, Isaiah is painting with broad brush strokes, and we've got some overlapping circles, as it were. So back in chapter 2, verse 5, you can flick there if you want, we had the call to walk in the light of the Lord. And it looked backwards as well as forwards. Verses 1 to 4 and verse 6 onwards provide the motivation. And the same is true of the last verse in chapter 2. Verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? It's like a hinge verse. Isaiah was building his case as to why God's people mustn't put their trust in humans. But now in chapter 3, he's unpacking verse 22. Why we shouldn't trust in mere humans, ourselves or others. And in verses 1 to 15 of chapter 3, it's because judgment is coming on those humans they're tempted to trust. 
So first up this morning, you'll see it if you've got an outline in front of you. It's retribution take one. God will eliminate ungodly leaders. God will eliminate ungodly leaders. The Lord God outlines how every kind of security is going to be stripped away. It's like kicking out someone's crutches. That's the idea. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, skillful magician, the expert in charms. They've put their trust, their faith in the wrong people, specifically anyone who's not God. And the result is complete societal collapse, a dismantling of society, all the leadership wiped out. You see, verse 4, toddlers are left to run the place. We can all imagine how well that would turn out. Those who are left are turning on each other. Things will get so bad, they'll be desperate for a leader. Anyone will do, verse 6. A bit like saying, look, you've got a suit. We'll make you our prime minister. It's a punishment to fit the crime. They've put their trust in people, and so God will expose how foolish, how disobedient it is to put our trust in people rather than in him. And if verses 1 to 7 outline the coming judgment, then verses 8 to 15 show us why it's such a deserved judgment. Verse 8, for Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Verse 9, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they've brought evil on themselves. Verse 11, woe to the wicked. It should be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Here we're reminded just why all this is going to come about. God's people have turned their back on him. Their words and their deeds are against the Lord. In fact, did you notice they openly proclaim their sin? The only people they have to blame, verse 9, are themselves. And then we get this scene from the courtroom in verse 13. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge Peoples, the Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who've devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor? God is both the prosecution lawyer as well as the judge. Never a great start if you're the defendant. And we find out it's the the elders, the princes, the leaders who are most in the crosshairs. They've been abusing God's people. The leaders have been abusing their positions of authority. And so now the whole nation is going to be handed over to inexperienced and incompetent leadership because it's the elders and leaders who've gone so far off track. Again, the punishment fits the crime. Verse 11, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. God is completely just and fair and right in his judgment. It is totally fitting. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And it's very interesting, isn't it? There's no mention of a king here. At least I find that interesting. It shows just how far we've come from the golden days of David and Solomon. The leadership have led a nation 
into sin. They've been crushing God's people. But it's not just those in power in the firing line. There is a wonderful equality here, as next the judgment comes on the women. Isaiah's dealt with the men, now for the women. And so in 3 verse 16 through to 4 verse 1, we get retribution take two, God will expose the ungodly daughters. It is a vivid description, isn't it? I'll just read it again for, uh, from verse 16. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. It's a great piece, isn't it? We can picture these women taking great pride in their gold and their good looks, prancing along, mincing even. It's a great word, isn't it? Uh, This long list is meant to make us see quite how ostentatious, even ridiculous, their luxuries are. These women are exalting themselves. They want everyone to notice them. But if in the first half of chapter 3, exalting others results in humiliating judgment, so here, exalting ourselves also results in humiliating judgment. Uh, Verse 17, their secret parts are exposed. It's grim, isn't it? And there's this complete reversal. Just look at verse 24 again. Instead of perfume, there'll be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. Branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. Seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Again, it's a scene of desperation, isn't it? The male population has been almost totally wiped out, so these women are desperate for anyone who'll have them. And perhaps we spotted in verse 26, the descriptions widened, not just to women, but it shows us it's really symbolic of the whole city. Her gates shall lament. It reminds us of chapter 1. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, is overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard. So actually, it's a a problem the whole city is facing. They've been self-promoting. They've been pursuing comfort and cosmetics. They've been putting themselves number one but it's all going to come crashing down on their heads. And again, the punishment fits the crime, doesn't it? It's a just, fitting retribution. But the question I've been asking myself is why? Why do we get this description of judgment here? Is it a warning not to splurge on makeup or jewellery? Should we uh, not go out to whatever shops are in Tunbridge Wells that I don't know which shops sell makeup and jewellery, but I imagine some people in our midst do. Uh, Certainly there are other parts of the Bible. 1 Peter 3, for example, warns us to pursue and prioritise the true inner beauty of godliness and not put our value in the externals we wear. 
But it would seem odd for that to be the main focus of Isaiah chapter 3. Now, firstly, Isaiah is giving a warning for what will come painfully true in the years ahead. As Jerusalem is besieged, as people are exiled to foreign lands, as men die in battle, these words are fulfilled. All of their leaders are killed or carted off. The male population is massively reduced. Food becomes scarce. The disaster and desperation prophesied here comes to pass. And so it's a warning. A warning of what life's like when God's people turn away from him and turn against one another. But it's also an encouragement. God takes away what we shouldn't put our confidence in, so we would take hold of what we should put our confidence in. The Lord God wants his people to trust him and him alone and keep trusting him. Perhaps we were surprised at the mention of the righteous in verse 10. Can you see them there? They seem almost out of place. But clearly some have not gone with the flow. They need this word to reassure them to keep trusting God. They need the motivation to keep walking in the Lord's way, in his strength. It is hard to keep trusting God's promises. It's especially hard when people who claim to be part of God's people are living in opposition to his word. Perhaps you're the only Christian in the workplace. Maybe you're the only Christian in your year at school, and it is tough. And what makes it all the harder is if there are one or two other people who say they're Christians, but seem to be very different to you. They don't seem to have any desire to tell others about Jesus. Maybe you know they drink too much. Or they just go with the flow on sexual ethics. They refuse to take a stand. It can make life very hard, can't it? The Church of England have just released their Living in Love and Faith resources, all about how the church should respond to questions of sexuality, identity, and relationships. And they're at a crossroads or rather a kind of fork in the road, to go God's way or the world's way. Writing 65 years ago, A.W. Tozer said, the church goes along with everything and stands against nothing until she is convinced that it is the safe and popular thing to do. Then she passes her courageous resolutions and issues her world-shaking manifestos, all in accord with the world's newest venture, whatever it may be. Let's pray that wouldn't be true of us. Let's pray that in God's kindness it wouldn't be true of the Church of England in the years to come. You see, Isaiah 3 and 4 are a clarion call not to turn away from the Lord, even if everyone else is, even if those who claim to be his are. God will judge all who claim to be his. Leaders who fail to lead will be held accountable. We need this constant reminder, sin really is the most serious problem in the world today. A few years ago, I read a book called The Sinfulness of Sin by Ralph Venning. I don't know if you've come across it. It is a brilliant book. Uh, he wrote it just four years after the Great Plague of London. Another title for it is Sin, the Plague of Plagues. And on the blurb, it says, here is reliable medicine for a fatal epidemic. I do heartily recommend the book for you. I think you can download it for free online. Uh, Venning says this, any sin is worse than any suffering. One sin than all suffering, and the least sin than the greatest 
suffering. Don't you need to hear that in a year like 2020? I certainly need to. It really is a serious thing, the most serious thing, to rebel against God and reject his good ways. That's what I was almost telling us. But the motivation isn't just warning here, it's also wooing. So in chapter 4, we're given a glorious vision of the future from Isaiah's perspective. It's the sun breaking through after the storm has passed. And in verses 2 to 6, we turn to the restoration. God will establish his glorious branch. We may have noticed, if we've been here over the last few weeks, how much Isaiah likes to crunch gears. And here he switches from retribution to restoration, from the collapse of society to purity and protection. And it's clear, isn't it, this comes after the judgment. This salvation lies on the far side of judgment. Just listen again. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. It's a picture of of new life, of rebirth. Do you remember, it may seem an age ago, but it was actually this year, those uh, pictures, that footage of the bushfires ravaging Australia. Huge swathes of the countryside kind of engulfed in inferno. But what comes in the months after those bushfires? It's new shoots of life and growth, isn't it? Emerging out of the ashes. And so after this devastation, after this fiery judgment, a branch, a shoot of the Lord will emerge. After all the present glory of Jerusalem has been stripped away and there are only a few survivors, the Lord will restore his people. And there are three things outlined for us. The first is the plan and purpose of the Lord. You see, verse 2, God's not given up on his plan. Despite the rebellion and sin of his people, his promise, his purpose, his plan still stands. There will be this branch. It's not just the idea of a a shoot of new growth, but also the idea of a, a family tree. Now, at this point in Isaiah, we might assume it's the renewed community of God's people. But as we read on in Isaiah, we come to the shoot in chapter 11, who's clearly a person. And then in places like Jeremiah 23 and 33, or Zechariah 3 and 6, we discover this branch will be an individual. Here is someone who will be God's people and draw together God's people. Here is a true godly leader in stark contrast to the leaders of Isaiah's day. Here is true beauty and glory in stark contrast to the daughters of Zion. Of course, this branch is Jesus Christ. We'll be thinking more next week about how we can be grafted in. All who are in him are part of the renewed people of God. But how? How will God restore a people for himself? Uh, Well, next, Isaiah turns to the people and place of the Lord. In verses 3 and 4, the people have been transformed. They're now a a holy people, a purified people, living in Jerusalem. 
And again, at this stage, we don't know how exactly God will do this. Uh, What will a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning look like? We saw something of it, didn't we, back in chapter 2. And again, there's the partial fulfillment, isn't there, as judgment falls on Jerusalem. The Assyrians lay siege, but are ultimately repelled in 701 BC. But then in 587 BC, the Babylonians smash the place and cart huge numbers off to exile. But as we read on, we find out those who are left aren't significantly better than those who were taken. So we're still left waiting for God to deal with sin through judgment somehow. And I hope it's no surprise for regulars that through judgment being poured out on the cross, God purifies a people for himself. So in Revelation chapter 7, as John draws on Isaiah 4, what do we see? Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are those clothed in white robes, and where have they come? Uh, from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. God purifies his people through judgment. Those who are recorded for life, verse 3, will be holy. Last week, Nate, our youngest, managed to get in the Golden Book at school. And he seems to think now that he's uh, somehow immune from any wrongdoing. He's disobedient at home, says, it it never minds, I'm in the Golden Book. He doesn't finish his supper, it it never minds, I'm in the Golden Book. He gets zero in his spellings, it never minds, I'm in the Golden Book. Now, he is somewhat misguided. But it did make me think how those recorded for life, those written in the Lamb's book of life, are in one sense untouchable. Not that we can sin with impunity, but if God's got our names down, nothing and no one can scrub it out. We are totally safe. We're made for life, set up for life, in fact, made for eternity. God is committed to his plan to purify a people for himself. Well, incredibly, it's ultimately to be with him and enjoy his presence forever. So the final thing, as I mentioned here, is the presence and protection of the Lord. In verse 4, they'll be purified in contrast to their filth in chapter 3, and now they'll be protected in contrast to getting crushed by the ungodly leaders in chapter 3. And it is such an attractive picture, isn't it? Some of our deepest, greatest longings are tied up with security and identity, aren't they? Do I matter? Do I really matter? Where is my life going? Will I be safe? Apparently people are saying goodbye now with the words, stay safe. Maybe we've even got an email from someone signing off with those words, stay safe. Now, of course, seeking safety and security outside of God very quickly becomes an idol. Who knows what's going to happen with coronavirus? A few of us would have predicted this year, who knows what 2021 will bring? Well, God does. And ultimately, this is what God has secured for all his people. Just listen to verses 5 and 6 again. Then... The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke 
and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy, there will be a booth for shade by day and from, from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Here's the wooing. What a motivation. Using language of the Exodus, it's a scene of God covering, protecting, caring for his people. And again, what do we read in Revelation 7? Well, John continues like this. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What Isaiah is looking forward to has been secured for us through Jesus' death and resurrection. But like the people in Isaiah's day, we too are still waiting. Salvation lies on the far side of judgment. It points us to the cross. We can only receive salvation now because Jesus Christ has taken the punishment we deserve. He's dealt with God's judgment. But there's still a future dimension. We will only fully receive salvation, life with God in, in all the fullness of where chapter 4 points after Jesus has returned in judgment. We're still looking forward. Jenny mentioned earlier that today is Advent Sunday. What a great reminder to keep looking forward to Jesus' return. Keep looking forward to all that God has in store for his people. But waiting for this future is meant to change us. It's meant to provoke a response. I'm sure if you asked most Israelites back then whether they were for God, they would have said yes. But there's a huge difference between thinking positively about God and actually serving him. There's a gulf between being an admirer of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. I don't agree with everything the philosopher Kierkegaard says, or on many things in fact, but he is helpful, I think, when he says this. The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Though in words, phrases, songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ, he renounces nothing, will not reconstruct his life, and will not let his life express what it is he supposedly admires. Not so for the follower, no, no. The follower aspires with all his strength to be what he admires. As we continue in the book of Isaiah, we'll see just that. God wants a holy people, because he is a holy God, the Holy One of Israel. And if we profess to follow Jesus, then it means not just receiving his salvation, not just waiting for his salvation, but being changed now to become more like him. Maybe we know we're still on the outside, as it were, looking in. Well, it's the same call to see the depths of our sin, the danger we're in, but also the offer, even the command, to turn back to Jesus and receive full cleansing and complete safety, lasting safety. Life following Jesus won't always be easy. In fact, I'm pretty certain it's going to get harder in the years ahead. And we'll see more and more people claiming to be Christians 
but proclaiming their sin like Sodom, verse 9. We'll face the temptation to live for the here and now and pursue comfort and put ourselves first. I feel that pull day by day. And so we need to remember these two anchor points of Isaiah 3 and 4. God will judge. A completely just, fair, right retribution. But he will also restore perfect purity and protection. And he does it all in and through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. When we're tempted to go with the flow, let's look to Jesus and remember he is the one who will judge everyone. Sin really is the most serious problem the world faces today. But let's look to Jesus and also remember he's the one who's died to purify us from all sin. When we look at a world resolutely defying God at every turn, again, let's remember Jesus is coming back in judgment. But let's remember he is the only hope of salvation anyone can have. He is the branch of the Lord. He will be seen as beautiful and glorious. Wouldn't it be great if we can help people see him as beautiful and glorious today? Let's pray together. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Lord God, thank you that in your kindness, in your love, you do expose us. You show us where we are wrongly putting our trust. You show us where we are wrongly exalting ourselves. And thank you that you have exalted Jesus. Thank you that he is the branch of the Lord. Thank you that he is beautiful and glorious. Thank you that in him uh, we have uh, purification, that we have complete protection, and we have your presence uh, forever. Please would we be those who see Jesus as he truly is, and through us would others come to see him as beautiful and glorious. In his name we pray. Amen.